Hi, everyone, and welcome to Academic Dean, where we connect with passionate college leaders who share their stories and viewpoints of higher education, especially lessons learned along the way. Academic Dean is sponsored by Myers-McRae Executive Search and Consulting. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dave Gercheck. Hi, everyone. Today, I'd like to welcome Dr. Mark Seeger to our show. Dr. Seeger is the Dean of the College of Natural Sciences and Mathematics at the University of Toledo in Toledo, Ohio. Hey, Mark, so glad to have you on the podcast today. Glad to be here, thanks. So first, can you talk a little bit about your college and why students select your institution? Um, well, my college is, like you said, natural sciences and mathematics. So we have all of the standard you know, science fields, math, physics, chemistry, biology, biochemistry, uh, astronomy and uh, environmental sciences as well. So um, why did students come to the University of Toledo? I, I'd like to think, maybe I'm a little biased, I'll admit that, but I'd like to think that we are particularly strong in the STEM fields, which includes my college. Um, we have some excellent researchers uh, in, along the faculty in the College of Natural Sciences and Mathematics studying things from things like water quality, other environmental issues, sustainable technologies like solar energy, for example. We have really good astronomers in the Department of Physics and Astronomy. And I think that helps to attract students here because a lot of students in the science fields, they do want to get involved in research. They want that hands-on piece of what we do. And uh, they they do have an opportunity to get involved in research from the day that they land on campus. We have faculty studying human disease in this college as well, in the biology department and uh, and infertility. So there's a lot of opportunities for students to get, get involved there. Uh, they learn about it from their first semester here, hopefully before they even come, actually. And just you know, a, a real opportunity to get involved in state-of-the-art research. We bring in about $20 million a year on average in uh, grants from federal and state governments. So, Oh, good. What, what's new on campus? New on campus? Uh, I think uh, in terms of new programs, maybe I'll focus on that. Um, we have a data science program that's fairly new um, and it's seeing growth. Data science is an area that you know, there's a national need for data scientists in a lot of different industries. So we're talking about once, you know, if a student comes here, graduates with a, an undergraduate degree in data science, they can walk out the door and be making over $100,000 a year. Uh, so that's, you know, it takes the right kind of person who's very mathematically minded to do that. But the salaries can be really good when they graduate. Um, another program we just started this semester, this coming semester, which starts next week, is our undergraduate neuroscience program, which is a joint program between my college and the College of Medicine. So the students will take their, their beat in my college for the freshman and sophomore years, and then they go over to medicine for the junior and senior years. Oh, neat. That's a new program. Yep. Yeah. yeah, that sounds exciting. Okay. Uh, um, and Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just, I was going to say that just sounds like a really interesting program if you want to share anything more about it. So, um, well, you know, it, it's, it's a little different from what you'd see in neuroscience programs elsewhere because we don't have the psychology piece in it. We just have the, the, the real 
life science, medical science kind of piece of the neuroscience program in there. So it's really studying the medicine of the brain, I guess, um, mm. and the biology of the brain. Um, another program that we're looking to develop is a, called forensic science. Um, for forensic science is another field where there's a lot of job opportunities for students so when they graduate. Um, and uh, what we're trying to do in the program here is combine the lab sciences in my college with the criminal justice work that happens in another college. So they're not just getting the, the lab science experience, they're getting the field experience as well. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah I, I remember I, I worked on a criminal justice degree a few years ago that's that's a that's a fun topic but i never even thought about forensics so yeah so a lot of a lot of forensic science programs will just focus solely on yeah lab science and they won't think about how it actually taps into the criminal justice yeah. side so we're trying to take a little different look at how at how forensic science actually works together with the criminal justice field oh. Yeah, no, no, that's a great idea. Uh, what are you currently focusing on right now to enhance the educational experience for your students? Um, actually, just yesterday, um, we were looking at uh, a space um, that's really been vacated, re vacated recently, and turning it into a more of a of an active learning type classroom. I, I suppose um, we were just talking about putting furniture in there that it's easy to move around, so it's on wheels or whatever. And um, just just to have a really flexible classroom to best try and suit the needs of the students. I was talking with someone earlier today, actually, about you know the idea of large lectures and how it doesn't really work for students. They don't really learn yeah. anything. Yeah. And the better approach is really um, for the lecture piece, you could just potentially put it online. And when students come to campus, they break out into smaller discussion groups it's more of an active learning kind of style where they're actually more engaged uh, and, and doing more hands-on kind of activities. So they really learn about, you know, the scientific principle that you're going over that day or, or whatever it happens to be. Because we all know that lots of studies show us that if, you, if you're more hands-on, students are more, much more likely to learn the material. Then yeah. they're not really learning anything if you're just talking to them at the front of a classroom. Yeah, it, it, education sure has changed over the last few years of, of now how we yeah. realize what's going on. And I think the students are changing too, especially like the, this pan, the pandemic affected education in ways that we we're not even we don't even realize it right now. I think yeah. what we do see is that students who are coming in now, maybe because of the pandemic, like the, the incoming class now, they were freshmen in high school when the pandemic hit in that spring semester of 2020. So they seem to be particularly impacted. Maybe it depends on the school district, but they do seem to be particularly impacted by the fact that they had a lot of remote learning. And remote learning, if you do it well, can be good. But I think we had to pivot so quickly to remote learning, whether it was in the schools, the K through 12 schools or higher ed, that we didn't necessarily do a good job of it until maybe a year or so into the pandemic. So, yeah, that's a good yeah. point. I, I've talked to a couple of college presidents and they said they, they noticed, and I, and I kind of agree with it. They said, it's just, they, they had trouble getting students to engage with other students on campus because they weren't, yeah. they weren't used to having students all around them all the time, which is like the best part about coming to college. <laughs> yeah. The, the, yeah. I mean, that's, 
one of the one of the issues is that they're just not used to engage in not just because of the pandemic i think because they also <laughs> engage with these handheld devices that they carry around with with, with them every day so, stuff that you and i didn't grow up with <laughs> yeah that's that's really a good good point mark um how is your institution adapting to the changing landscape of higher ed then including new technologies such as vr and ai um well that that artificial intelligence is uh you know with chat gpt is hot, hotly debated in higher education since about like, when was it launched in november of last mm-hmm. year something like that so um my personal opinion is that students are going to use chat gpt so we have to figure out a way for them to use it appropriately to use it as a tool not as a way to cheat <laughs> i think right. a lot of faculty are concerned about uh, students handing in essays that were written by chat gpt it's too easy to spot i mean chat yeah. gpt you know it it is basically a robot and you can tell that it was yeah. that the essays tend to be very formulaic so i think it's okay to use it as a tool an example i can give is uh, an issue that i was trying to solve with uh, with, with a postdoc who works for me is that we were trying to write a a, a python code and uh, we asked ChatGPT to write the Python code for us <laughs> because we didn't know where to start. However, when you run the Python code, it didn't actually work. So we needed to go in and actually fix the errors ourselves. Um, and I think that's true for ChatGPT, no matter what you're trying to do with it. It can give you a good framework to start with if you just don't know where to start. But it needs to be heavily edited. And I, I think... I- yeah, I agree. That's that's probably that's see, I'm not afraid of chat GPT because, you know, I mean, it's all Internet stuff. So if you just have your students go through, a, you know, send them to any of those plagiarism type things, it kind of yeah. knocks a little of that stuff out. But it does help them start stuff. You know, right. I mean, it does. Yeah. And I think that's the beginning is where do I start? They do that and at least start them. They just have to realize they can't put their name on it and turn <laughs> exactly. it in. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, you can't turn it in just whatever chat GPT spits out, you can't turn it in like that. You have to, it gives you a good framework to start. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I would say that for me though, this is just the beginning of artificial intelligence and I'm wondering where it's going to go in the future. Um, yeah. And you think about who's invested in like the open AI, open AI, the company that released chat GPT, got people like Elon Musk and, Microsoft, I think, are involved in it, and we know we know that uh, this could be a disruptive technology in the long term. And I think I don't I don't know when this could happen, but I can imagine a, a future where AI has made some jobs just uh, irrelevant, or yeah. um, it, it, it's it's really difficult to tell exactly what's going to happen. Uh, there was one article I read where. Um, they had actually given a, a, a contract to uh, a form of generative uh, AI. It wasn't ChatGPT, and uh, it, it the, with the idea that it would try to spot all the legal mistakes in the contract. And they gave it to a team of lawyers as well. And the lawyers took two or three hours, and they found, you know, eighty three percent of the errors. The the AI did. In 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 thirty seconds, it found ninety three percent of the errors. So yeah, <laughs> it's it, it's it may even make the legal profession redundant, who knows, but I, I doubt it. But 
there are certainly things that AI can do that humans won't be able to do. And right. I think, or, or be better than humans can do. Um, there's also the potential, and I think that this is something that we see happening with Tesla, for example, that, I mean, Tesla, Elon Musk hasn't made a secret of this. He wants to have vehicles that can drive themselves. So what happens when he releases his semi-truck that can drive itself? Right. You want to call, you want to get, you want to make sure you get a hold of that union to let them know everybody's about ready to go out and have a job. Everybody's about, every, every truck driver in the country is no longer going to have a job. Yep. Yep. Oh, I agree. That's yeah. really, Mark, that's really a good point. I, I think you're the first college dean that really started talking truthfully behind chat GPT because there is some positive stuff, everybody, you know, yeah. but there's also some negative stuff and you have to talk, you have to talk about both ends to, to make it more sensible to everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, with the rising cost of education, what are you guys doing to make education more affordable and accessible for your students? Well, um, <laughs> I, mean, I think in higher education, we're sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place to some extent. I think, um, you know, as states have cut back on the amount of money that they that they send to public schools, uh, schools of higher education like the University of Toledo, you've seen tuition go up and it's gone up faster than the rate of inflation. Everybody always says that. Um, but that's that's essentially what's driving how much we pay in tuition these days. Um, how, how do we help students? Um, I mean, I think that th there, there are a number of ways to try and help students. Obviously, I'm always talking with donors about um, mm -hmm especially needs-based scholarships. Um, I think a lot of universities, uh, historically speaking, have a lot of merit-based scholarships. But more, now more than ever, we need the needs-based scholarships. So there are always donors, especially like what I find is that faculty who have spent their whole lives at a university that really can impact uh, people from, you know, um, you, you, the University of Toledo, one of our strengths is that we can help people climb the social ladder, right? That's true of a lot of universities, not just the University of Toledo, but it's one of our strengths. Not every university can claim that. Harvard, for instance, if you can afford <laughs> to go to Harvard, you probably don't need to climb the social ladder. <laughs> that's uh, a good but, point. <laughs> but at the University of Toledo, that's one thing that we can, we can really, really make an impact here. And the faculty who have spent their whole careers here and seen that, uh, if they have capacity, and I've certainly spoke, spoken with one or two who are nearing the end of careers, and you can just tell that the thing that they want to try and give back to is needs-based scholarships to try and help students come in. If they can't afford to go to college, there might be a scholarship there for them. Okay. Those are the kinds of things that we really need. Um, I think also just working with our representatives in the state legislature, working with our representatives in the federal government as well, to try and get all of the aid that we possibly can to help students out as much as possible. And then, you know, when, when there really isn't help, you know, setting up payment plans, just something as simple as that. Um, I, I'm, I'm in favor of 0% payment plans so that students just can, you know, so they don't get, you know, a $6,000 bill for their first semester and then another $6,000 bill the next semester. So, because that, that that's about what tuition tuition here is about eleven thousand dollars a year. Most of the, most students will get some kind of discount, um, but that that's about what it's running right now. 
we're, I think we're fairly, fairly um, inexpensive compared to a lot of other institutions, especially in the state of Ohio, but it's still a lot of money. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what are you guys doing to prepare students for today's workforce? Um, well, we do have a number of things. Um, we we do fo focus on workforce development. We have a committee that works with uh, on workforce development. Um, we, I as a dean, I like to talk with the local representatives from local industry to see what we can do to best prepare our students who go into those industries. So the kinds of things, uh, the kinds of industries I've been talking with in Northwest Ohio, we've got a really strong solar industry here, solar power industry. Um, and we do a lot of research actually in, in collaboration with them. Um, we have uh, glass materials. Um, the history of uh, Toledo, by the way, uh, it's called the Glass City. <laughs> That's its nickname. Because there's a lot of glass manufacturers in the city of Toledo. And, and, and they're still here, like Libby Glass, I think, has been here a long time. OI Glass, we've got Owens Coonan has an office here. Um, many others, I can't think of them all off the top of my head. But that actually led to the solar industry coming to Northwest Ohio Toledo as well, because every solar panel has a layer of glass on top of it because you're trying to protect the the film that's actually doing the work for you. So um, that's a particular strength. Uh, this area of Ohio has been referred to as the Silicon Valley for solar technology. Wow. But first solar is... Um, Strictly speaking, the headquarters are in Arizona, but the main plant of operations where they actually make the solar panels is about 20 minutes away from this campus. So, so we have strong ties with them. Uh, one, of, well, the, one big piece of news in the last couple of years has been Intel moving to the state of Ohio. They're in the central part of Ohio near Columbus. But, you know, they, they invested $20 million in the state. And uh, it could be up to $100 million if things really work out for them. So we're trying to really talk with them to see what they need, what kind of workforce they need. One of the things they tell us is that 60% of their workforce will need less than a four-year degree. Yeah. And we're hearing that more and more is that not, not every job needs a four-year degree. How do, how do we cater to companies like Intel that don't necessarily need that. We're developing smaller credentials, like micro-credentials, a certificate. Um, yeah, that's, you know, that was one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, you know, which is the alternative credentialing. And and now we're seeing a lot of micro-credentials yeah. come out. How do you think that's going to affect the future of higher ed? Well, that's a really good question. I mean... I, I think we have to become more nimble as uh, as universities um, in terms of what we offer. We have to be able to pivot more quickly um, as things change. I think we're not used to doing that. Um, yeah, well, that's true, yeah. And it, it, it's all well and good developing these micro-credentials. I mean, one, one that we've got is a, we just came up with an undergraduate certificate in semiconductor science, for example, which is applicable to what Intel does, 
And yeah, it's something that we put in a proposal to Intel and they actually gave us some scholarship money. So that helped us <laughs> and it helps us bring in students who might go and work for Intel in the long term. Um, if we're moving away from four-year programs, though, that's a very different model for higher education, especially at a four-year school like, yeah. like the University of Toledo. I, I think there'll always be room, for, uh, there'll always be a place for those four-year programs. And there'll always be people who are looking for someone with the four-year degree. Now, remember, Intel said 60% of the workforce will have less than a four-year degree. But that means that 40% will have a four-year degree or something higher. So there's yeah. still a significant number of uh, of people going into that workforce with a four-year degree or maybe even something more. Yeah, I, I see micro-credentials as really starting the path of lifelong learning. Come to you, get yeah. the credentials to go to work, and then come back because eventually they're going to need a degree to continue to move up. A lot of times they do. Yeah. Not that maybe not that initial job, but right. uh, but I think down the road. And, and universities and colleges, they make... I mean, your job is also to develop citizens. <laughs> it's, yeah. almost, it's just not about psychomotor skills, you know. Right. So, and, and you know, to some extent, we see that in our data science program as well. Like the students will get to the end of their of their junior year; they don't even complete the degree, and they've already got offers for sixty thousand dollars. And these could be students who didn't even realize there were jobs out there that paid as much as $60,000 because their parents have just never made that kind of money. So they jump at the opportunity, they drop out of school, they go start making $60,000 a year, but that's all they're ever going to make is $60,000 yeah. a year. Yeah. If they want career progression, they need to complete the yeah. degree at some point. Yeah, yeah, I I, I totally agree with that. Yeah. Um, well, can you highlight any unique or innovative programs at your college? I, um, I know that's putting you on a hot seat because I don't want to, <laughs> but do you have anything unique or innovative there that you want to share with us? Uh, well, I think I already spoke about uh, forensic science and, oh, that's right. and the neuroscience program. Um, what, what else unique do we have? Um, I think a lot of the programs that you see in a college, in this college are you know, the fairly standard physics, math programs. Um, the math department's developing an actuarial science program. They have a concentration. I don't know if that's particularly unique, but mm. um, they're, they're going to split out the program so it's a standalone actuarial science bachelor's degree and yeah. uh, develop, uh, develop some new courses so that students taking that program will be prepared for all four of their actuarial exams. Right. Maybe maybe that I don't think that's particularly innovative, innovative but yeah. it's something new that we're doing here. Um, well, I think your forensic, I think that one is really kind of unique to say the least. So I think the forensic science will be unique. Okay. I think there are unique aspects of our of programs that we have here, and I might say, well, physics. Yeah, okay, you can do physics almost anywhere, but. I'd, I'd rather focus on what, what's unique about our physics program here compared to a physics program at Ohio State or Cincinnati or even Bowling Green that's just down the road. And what I think is that, you know, it's the solar research that they do. It's the, it's the fact that you can tap into, you can go and do research at our, with our photovoltaics group doing the solar research and maybe even get an internship in Toledo Solar or First Solar 
uh, and it really prepares you for that kind of industry. So if you're looking for sustainable solutions to the energy crisis, the climate crisis, we're doing that kind of thing here at the University of Toledo. Uh, environmental sciences has a big focus on water quality. And this goes back to the 2014 water crisis that happened in Toledo. So back in 2014, uh, there was an algal bloom in Lake Erie um, where, the, where the water intake is for the, South city, for the city of Toledo and the surrounding suburbs. And uh, it was a severe algal bloom that was breaking down. So the, the toxin in the algal bloom was getting into the water supply. They had to shut down all of the water for the city. Like people were people were running out into the stores buying bottled water, but they were running out of bottled water. <laughs> um, the only thing you could do was would maybe have a bath or shower, um, but if you needed to drink, then you needed to get bottled water. So, ever since then, we've had a water task force here at the University of Toledo that works not just on campus but with government agencies as well. We've helped the city of Toledo really prepare. Um, the, the city of Toledo has invested over a billion dollars in in cleaning the water now so that it doesn't happen again. And we have a lot of emphasis on how how we deal with this algal bloom because it happens every year. We have an algal bloom every year in, in, in Western Lake Erie. So there's a big focus on that in our environmental sciences program. Although there's also people outside of environmental sciences, even in other colleges, who are interested in water quality, uh, how it affects human health. That's going on in the College of Medicine. There's even some legal, like college, the College of Law faculty member who's involved in water quality issues as well from a legal standpoint. Um, well, you know, as technology continues to disrupt traditional industries, how is your college preparing students for? jobs that may not even exist yet um it's it's difficult to prepare students for jobs that don't even exist yet but we have to try and think find ways to do that um and i, I was just talking this morning about this actually um funnily enough uh, we have a provost search going on here and we so this kind of discussion is coming up quite often I, i'm actually chairing the search committee so um <laughs> so which means i'm going to stakeholder meetings this week and next week but um yeah so a discussion that came up today was you know how do you make programs colleges universities nimble enough so that you can pivot to provide needs for students for so you're preparing them for jobs that we don't even know exist yet that question so one example i brought up it's just, you know, we, we're living in a world where there's environmental issues, there's a climate crisis, there's an energy crisis, which may actually be related to the climate crisis. Let's say it, it probably is. Um, there's a whole a host of environmental issues, social justice issues. So how do, how do we prepare students, even today, <laughs> Not let, let alone in the future, for things that they're going to have to tackle. Right? The, the students that we're educating today, they're going to be the students who have to solve these crises before this century ends, right? Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we're in real trouble. We were talking about how you really integrate things like social justice into STEM programs, because that's incredibly important, right? When you think about like the climate crisis, who is that going to impact the most? It's going to be the people who are on the poorer end 
of our social spectrum. That's why it's important to talk about things like that. Um, I don't think we do a particularly good job of dealing with these questions in our gen ed right now, in our general education, but we can do better and we can integrate it into the curriculum better at maybe even at several points instead of just taking your one social science class and you're done. Maybe we need to talk about things like this more often. I think also looking at where science and engineering overlap, there's a lot of synergy, I believe, between a college of science like mine and a college of engineering, which is about a 10 minute walk that way. There's a lot of things that we can solve together, right? I said, you know, physics has our photovoltaics group, solar energy. Um, they're very applied. They're actually right next to their buildings, right next to the engineering buildings. Uh, but they don't really work that closely with engineering right now, but I'd like to see them work more closer. And then I think about things like chemistry, physics, chemical engineering, and electrical engineering, and how all those disciplines do things that should try and help us create the energy sustainability of the future. Um, but they're not really working that well together right now. There's a lot of synergy. Maybe even you could even add mechanical engineering in there. There are other institutions that have developed programs called energy engineering. And really it's just a mix of of courses from these different programs. So it's really trying to prepare students well, give them the skill set that they need that they might be able to tackle sustainable energy production in the future. Mm. That's just that's one example, I yeah. think. Of. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, let me throw you, let me change topics here real fast. Because I, I haven't asked you about you yet. How long have you been the dean there? I just started my third year, so two okay. years, almost exactly okay. two. Years. Yeah. Can you can you talk a little bit about the path that that led you to become the dean at the University of Toledo? Okay. Um, so right before I came here, I was actually a program director at the National Science Foundation uh, that's in. Alexandria, Virginia, so just outside of Washington, D.C., uh, and I was there for a couple of years. I was So the National Science Foundation, as most people know, you know, it's supporting, supporting science research at, all over the country, um, but they, they uh, rely on rotating program directors. So I was actually, uh, I was in the University of Minnesota system. That's where my tenure home was at the time uh, on the Duluth campus. And I'd come from the University of Minnesota system to the National Science Foundation, still officially employed, employed an employee of the University of Minnesota. Um, and there I had been, uh, I'd, I'd been both a department chair of a department of physics and astronomy and an associate dean in the College of Science and Engineering at the Duluth campus there for close to a decade, I think, in, in, in those roles. Um, before that, I was on the faculty at the University of Arkansas, Little Rock. So uh, that's where I started my faculty. That, 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 that was the first faculty position I'd ever had. Um, so um, I started, <laughs> you know, I grew up in London, England. So um, I'm, a, I'm a long way from my home. <laughs> my my uh, academic career, I suppose, I started as an undergraduate degree, an undergraduate st studying physics. And then went off and got a PhD in astrophysics at Liverpool, 
before coming to the United States. And my first job in the United States was actually um, at an astronomical observatory in Hawaii. So, yeah. Well, so, so like, like a lot of, like a lot of um, academic leaders, you came from, you moved from faculty up. Yes. And so I guess if I was going to say, I want to become a dean, I want to become an associate dean, what qualities should these individuals bring to the table to kind of make that job uh, transition easier? Um, I Well, first, I don't think if you want to be a dean, you don't necessarily have to be an associate dean. Correct. I think right. being a department chair is probably, or a center director, is probably a more important step to the deanship. Um, the reason for that is because as, as a department chair or a research center director, you actually have people who report to you. Associate deans don't necessarily have people who report to them. Uh, my view is that if you're if you're if you're a department chair or a dean, one of the one of the big jobs you have is setting a vision for your unit, whether it's a department or a college. Yeah. And uh associate deans tend to be more about the processes and procedures you need to follow so that you can actually achieve that vision. <laughs> and I, I find myself is that I, I can think I can often see the big picture, but I need people to help me out with the day-to-day -day procedures and how you actually accomplish things that you want to accomplish. Uh, I don't get, I, I'm not very good at, I don't necessarily know what the procedures are here, first of all, because I came here, I wasn't used to the institution, so I needed people to help me figure out what the procedures are and the policies to follow. Not that I can't do those things, I can, um, it's just that what I found is that the associate deans that I have, they tend to be focused more on those things just because that's what they want to do. And I want to focus more on the big picture and the vision setting for the college. Um, so that I think to be a dean, you really have to have an idea in a college of how all the pieces just fit together and where they can possibly lead in terms of not in higher education, it's not just about educating students. I mean, that's our big focus, obviously. But we want to create new knowledge, too. And we want to help those students create new knowledge, whether they're undergraduate or graduate students. That's part of our educational mission is teaching students how to create new knowledge. So that's the research piece and how it fits in to, to what we do in the college. Maybe, yeah. I don't know how well how much that helps. No, well, to be to be honest, Mark. I mean, you have the same background I did. I was a I was a faculty. I was a department chair. I was an associate dean. I was a dean, yeah. and truly, I I totally agree with you. And I, I've never thought about that until you said it. Is the department chair is really the jump to the dean? The associate dean is a different. It's like a sidetrack that I'm doing not the same type of workload. So yeah, and I th I think the associate dean can help a little bit because you do get to see you start to see how everything fits together at the level of the college. So it can help a little bit rather than just jumping from chair to dean. So I wouldn't say don't do that. If you get an opportunity to do oh, it, yeah. maybe you yeah. should. Um, you just might find that it's not really the right thing for you. I don't think it was for me. I I, I spent three years as an associate dean yeah. um, one yeah. term. Basically. Yeah, I, 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 to me, I still think one of the hardest jobs was the department chair because you're playing both sides. That's that's the toughest gig, I think. <laughs> Actually, my, my department chairs have came came to the realization that, that um, 
that Dean is also a middle manager. <laughs> department chairs often think that, uh, you know, that, and they, they do, department chairs, that, that is definitely the hardest job in higher education, in my opinion. And I think a lot of people would agree with that. But I think it's, I think it's also important for the chairs to understand that the dean is also a middle, middle manager. Yeah. Yeah, we got yeah. at least two levels of management above us. <laughs> That's true, and and fac sometimes faculty faculty kind of forget that they kind of think you're the yeah. decision maker. It's like, no, I got people above me. I it's not the same thing. There's a provost and a president and a board of trustees above me. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, here's my last question for you: What advice would you give prospective students and their families when choosing the right college for their education? Um. I think it's just about the way that you feel. I mean, it's it's really difficult to to re to really put a finger on it. I think uh, that I mean, I know that when I was, you know, it was a long time ago when I was looking for colleges. Right, I'm I'm helping my kids look for colleges in the next couple of years. So, um, it, it's you know. First, first and foremost, you know, you have to at least have some kind of idea of what you want to study. And I think that you know, we, we see a lot of students who want, they know that they want some kind of STEM program, science or engineering, um, but they don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe they don't know exactly what they want to do within that, that general field of STEM. So I, th I think if you want STEM, you need to find a university that you know is particularly strong in that field. But there are a lot of universities that have st strong STEM programs. So how do you choose from them? I think it really comes down to how you feel when you visit the university. I, I, I don't think there's more, more to it than that is that if you have a really good experience when you go to a university, you're probably going to say, you know, I really liked it there. Maybe maybe that's where. And it could be just that, you know, they, they really engaged with you as a family, not just not just a student, but the whole family. They got you into their lab to show you what they're doing. We try to do that here at the University of Toledo, of course. So um, so you really you really felt that there was an opportunity for you to do something that's really at the cutting edge of whatever kind of program that you're interested in. And maybe that just clicks with you. So it, it's just Sometimes it's just your gut feeling. There's, there's no more to it than that, I think. Well, I would agree with you on that. And I think yeah. that's a good place for us to end our conversation today. Okay. Mark, thanks so much for being on the podcast. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. It was great. Well, that wraps up today's episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks for listening to today's episode. And make sure to visit our website at academicdean.com. Also, if you enjoy our podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Academic Dean is sponsored by Myers-McRae Executive Search and Consulting. Thanks again for tuning in. Until next time.